Hello again, Grace Community family. It's so good to be back. Let's take a moment and let's pray as we prepare our hearts for God's word. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we would be able to comprehend your love. We ask that we would see your love in your word and be moved by it to worship you and to love you more. Do what we cannot do ourselves and stir up in our affections a deeper and greater love for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon, and I was recently, last two weeks, been relieved of, of the burden of preaching by Pastor John, and I thank you, Pastor John, for, for doing that. It was wonderful to be able to listen in online and uh, to be able to hear what was going on here, and Pastor John did a wonderful job of continuing our study through John chapter 11, and that brings us now to John chapter 12. So if, you're, if you are a guest with us today, we're studying through the book of John. We're now come to John chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 1 through 8. And this is by far, I keep on finding stories in the Bible that are my favorite story, but this has to be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, so inevitably, I'm going to get off script because I just, I love this passage so much. This story reveals Jesus as the greatest treasure of our life. This story reveals Jesus as the greatest treasure of our life and how treasuring Jesus shapes and orders our values. When we treasure Jesus, it keeps other lesser values from ruling or distorting our life. And so our main theme for today as we study through this passage is Give yourself first to the worship of God. The main idea of this passage is that we should give ourselves first to the worship of God. And I have six points to work that out. The first four are things that compete with Jesus for our heart's affections. Things that try and steal away our love for Christ and put it on something else. And the last two are two ways that Jesus changes our hearts. First, he exposes our true priorities. Notice he shows us what our heart really loves. And then secondly, he loves and he protects heartfelt worship. So with that, shall we jump in? The first major idea here is that Jesus is more valuable than luxury. Jesus is more valuable than luxury. Look with me, if you will, at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Pure nard is the undiluted form of an expensive Indian spice worth 300 denarii. That's roughly a year's wages for an ordinary laborer. It's a lot of money. 
And while nowadays we often think of, I mean, we live in a global economy, and so for us to have something from India doesn't seem very strange, but for someone in Israel to have a spice that had been imported from India, that was a substantial luxury. And in a day when bathing was less common, when running water and sewer was almost unheard of, the day-to-day smell of life was frankly much different than what we are accustomed to, Americans especially, because practically everything we use is perfumed. Everything that we wash ourselves with, everything that we adorn our homes with is filled with sweet scents. And so the life, the smell of life was just much different than what we're accustomed to. And so just for a moment, imagine, just for a moment, imagine a group of men who've been walking all day come into a house. They're seated down, and you've got the heat of that room and the conversation, the smell of sweat, food mixed together. Probably the dirt from the street is still on their feet. Your clothes, which you haven't probably washed recently, that, that smell. And then in the midst of that, this much of a spice. We don't know how much of a spice it was, but it seems as though this wasn't just like a small vial that she took out. It's some kind of bottle that she cracked the head open off of and poured out the entirety of it all over Jesus. This spice poured out from Jesus' head to his feet would have filled the room with a smell that most people would have never experienced before and probably would never again. It would have reduced every other smell to the background, like a masterfully played violin might reduce conversation instantly to mere whisper. And for a moment, I like to imagine that there was nothing but the oil's sweetness and the disciples' silence. And what John wants us to grasp by using this image, by giving us this picture of the extravagance that Mary uses, is that Jesus is more valuable than luxury or status. You see, to have such a spice in your home would have signified enormous wealth. You don't just keep something on your shelf worth a year's wages unless you have a lot of wealth. It would have been a status symbol. And to expend it so prodigally, all in one moment and all on one guest, was beyond extravagant. The common purpose of such a spice was to be used sparingly to temper the stench of day-to-day life. It was a privilege. But Mary chooses a greater value. Jesus is more valuable than luxury. In her heart, it would be better for her to pour it out on Jesus and to display her heart's deepest longing for and delight in his glory than to have days and days of relatively greater comfort. She chose between masking the stench of ordinary life for days and days and days and instead poured it out on one person in one moment. And friends, we are invited constantly 
especially in our society, to surround ourselves with and to indulge in ever-increasing luxury. And while luxury in and of itself is not sinful, it's not wrong that Mary had this perfume at all, luxury is not sinful, but we must ask ourselves whether we have been enticed by ease and comfort to overlook the greater glory of Christ. Because we live in a world that regularly says luxury and comfort is far more valuable than Christ. Now, some of us might pursue luxury like a badge of honor because it seems to validate our hard work because it says, I've done a good job. But others might pursue luxury because we're afraid of missing out on pleasure. We're afraid that if we don't do this, we're not going to experience something that's really amazing and important. Or all of our friends are experiencing it, and therefore we feel as though we must as well. And some are enticed by the appearance of social prestige. We don't so much want it for ourselves, but we want others to see that we are important. We want others to see that we deserve these things. But notice that Mary has not been so seduced. She is not concerned, at least right now, with social prestige or with comfort. Instead, in this moment, her heart has been entirely consumed with her love for Jesus. And only Jesus. She wants to give him something that displays what he means to her. And so she pours out this most precious oil and she fills the room with a once-in-a-lifetime smell so as if to say, you are more valuable to me than comfort. You are more valuable to me than social standing. You are more valuable to me than a year's labor because Jesus is more valuable than luxury. The second point, then, is that Jesus is more valuable than the appearance of social propriety. Jesus is more valuable than the appearance of social propriety. So look again at verse 3 and notice how she does this. It says, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And I know two things. One, that she anointed Jesus' feet and then secondly, that in order to do so, she let down her hair. That she anointed Jesus' feet is significant because caring for feet, which as we said, often came in contact with the most, uh, with the refuse of life, was considered an extremely lowly task in society. Jewish slaves could even refuse to wash other people's feet because it was so disgusting a task. So this was a position of great humility. And we'll see this played out again when Jesus washes his disciples' feet and says that this is the example of love that we're to show to one another. So this is a very lowly task. It's a position of great humility. And by consequence, it communicates that the person who is being so served is of immense honor. You would be willing to wash the feet of someone that you consider to be worthy of that humility. Mary deliberately, willingly, even joyfully lowers herself, not so much to show how unworthy she is, 
but to show just how worthy Christ is. Mary's prostration then at the feet of Jesus is significant. You have to imagine that if she's going to wipe his feet with her hair, she must get as low to the ground as possible, especially in a society where most of the time you reclined at table. She prostrates herself at the feet of Jesus, showers him with this ointment, and lets down her hair. And that she lets down her hair is doubly significant, for this was considered an act of extraordinary intimacy, something a woman would only do for her husband or at most her family. But Mary is not making a romantic gesture. Instead, she is expressing a profound delight in Christ. She is offering her wholehearted, humble love and devotion. Now, either of these things, her serving his feet or her undoing her hair, would have been out of place for a woman of high society. It would have been completely impolite. It would have cost her the appearance of social propriety. Now, I say appearance because Mary, we know, did nothing indecent. Now, while society might think that she did, and clearly some people here do think that she did, Judas being the foremost of them, she hasn't done anything indecent. She hasn't behaved inappropriately towards Christ. But in the eyes of the world, she did. Such an action could cost her. Just as she was not concerned with the material cost, and just as she wasn't concerned about whether this was efficient or, or whether this was a, a terrible sort of indulgence to use it all on one person, she is now not overly concerned with what anyone else thinks about her. She isn't paying attention to the cost, the efficiency, or the society. She is concerned with one thing, the transcendent glory and value of Jesus. Mary's not doing this for shock value. And we could imagine that, especially in a society like ours now, where one of the ways that you gather interest is by doing things that are shocking or saying things that arouse anger. We must not impute that or read that into Mary's intentions. She's not trying to get society to go, whoa, what an amazing woman stepping out of her normal gender role here. She's not trying to express herself. She's not trying to distinguish herself from Martha. She does this because in this moment, all she sees is Jesus. And he's more valuable to her than anything else, even social favor. And friends, as society becomes increasingly uncomfortable with the teachings of Jesus we are going to likely lose social favor for associating ourselves with Jesus. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about society's opinion at all, but it does mean we should be more concerned with the opinions of Christ than we are with the opinions of the world that surrounds us. How Jesus regards you is vastly more important than maintaining the appearance of social propriety. How Jesus regards you is far more important than maintaining the appearance of social propriety. Now, Jesus calls his disciples to be characterized by humility. So we're not 
We're not stepping out of, of society's good regard simply for the sake of setting ourselves out, <laughs> just to be different, just for shock value. Christ calls us to be humble, to associate with the lowly, to be unconcerned with the popular inner circle, and to seek others' well-being besides our own. So friends, we should pursue Christ's regard rather than the esteem of men. Third thing that we see then is that Jesus is more valuable than the appearance of moral piety. He's more valuable than luxury, he's more valuable than social standing, and he's more valuable than the appearance of moral piety. So now look at verses four through five. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So now here Judas lets us in on another impediment to heartfelt worship of Christ, something that wants to get in the way of us holding Jesus as the most valuable reality in our life, the love of money. So look at verse 6. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This is, uh, this is an aside here, but almost everything that we do, there's, there's at least two ways to do everything you do. There's a way to do it aiming for the glory of Christ, and there's a way to do it for some other reason. This is a genuine way that Judas could have said, out of genuine concern for the poor, why did this go on? We, we should have served the poor. But John takes us behind Judas's intentions and shows us his heart. The reason he's concerned about this is not because Judas has a profound concern for the humble, the lowly, the disenfranchised, and the vulnerable. He likes his own comfort. He hasn't even passed the first major point, right? The first major point here is that Jesus Christ is more valuable than luxury. Judas doesn't think so. He thinks luxury is worth its own ends. This is an excellent example here of how the love of money can corrupt an otherwise good goal. The love of money can enter into something that otherwise is a wonderful thing. Judas knows Jesus' view on money. I mean, Judas hasn't missed out on all of Jesus' teachings on money, and Jesus teaches a lot on money. So what Judas does, because he knows how Jesus sees money, is he cloaks his criticism in the robes of moral piety. He says, this is wasteful. We should have given this to the poor. The problem is not with the charitable contribution. It's with the orientation of his heart. Surely there would have been a wrong way for Mary to have poured out the nard on Jesus. She could have been seeking society's approval. She could have been drawing attention to her own moral piety. She, she could have been doing what, what Judas now does, trying to get Jesus to approve of her in some special way. But what makes her worship beautiful is not so much what she does, but why she does it. The posture of her heart sanctifies and it even dignifies, it justifies her outward behavior. 
And conversely, Judas's heart pollutes his suggestion. So in just the same way that Mary's deep desire to show Christ her love for him, that sanctifies what she does. It, it would otherwise be an, a socially inappropriate gesture. It was, it was perhaps an uncomfortable thing to do, but it makes it right. And in Judas's case, he takes an expression that otherwise would be right, but his heart pollutes it and twists it. He doesn't care about the poor. Instead, he saw a way to manipulate the outward appearance of moral piety to his own advantage. Friends, heartfelt Christian faith is not ultimately concerned with efficiency. It's not a business. We're not running a business. A church is not a business. Christianity is about a relationship. And friends, if you know anything at all about relationships, they are not efficient. They take time, lots of time. Pastor John regularly tells me, you know, you only get quality time if you spend quantity time. Like, you, relationships take work, regular work, long work. Now, this is no excuse for wanton or wasteful stewardship. We're not saying that because a church isn't a business, we needn't pay attention to how we use our money. That's not the point. But to say that devotion offered to God with no obvious or immediate material benefit to others to say that that is a waste is a satanic idea. I'm going to say that again. To say that devotion offered to God with no obvious or immediate material benefit to anyone else, to say that that is a waste is a satanic idea. Judas sought to gain approval in the eyes of the religious elite and to profit personally by condemning an act of true worship as wasteful. And runs right there, you have to see that true worship fundamentally can't be wasteful. It's never a waste what you give to God out of the fullness of your heart and with faith. It is never wasted. God cares for the poor, and God cares about how we use our money, but there is far more to obedience than the mere act itself. Christian behavior can't be divorced from Christian attitude. The quantity of a gift is not as significant as the quality of the heart that gives it. And while it would be wrong to imagine that true and genuine piety can somehow exist apart from real loving action, Yet it is equally mistaken to imagine that outward actions can make up for inward evil. You can't do enough good stuff to cover over the wickedness of your heart. Nor can you claim that the piety and the, and the purity of your heart doesn't need to appear in any tangible way. Real genuine worship always comes out in our life. This is why without faith, it is impossible to please God. And you reduce it down to a simple phrase. Or to say that anything done apart from faith is sin, as Paul does in Romans. Jesus is not looking for the most efficient disciples. Jesus is looking for disciples who love him more than anything else, even the poor brings us to our fourth point. Jesus is more valuable than social causes. 
Jesus is more valuable than social causes. Jesus rebuked to Judas, then we need to listen to it in context. If you look at verses 7 through 8, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus here is not saying that the poor don't matter. And at first glance, you might say that that's, oh, good, we don't have to care about the poor because Jesus is more valuable. Nor is he recommending a kind of nihilistic apathy concerning social justice, meaning, well, you're always going to have the poor, so there's no use in trying to do anything about poverty. You're always going to have a broken world. Christians shouldn't even be bothered with it. We should just be focused on worshiping Jesus. No. Jesus is speaking about the priority of our affections. Jesus is saying he is more valuable than social causes. It's not that the poor do not matter. It's that Jesus matters more. Worship is not then a zero-sum game. By pouring out 300 denarii worth of oil on Jesus, Mary does not rob 300 denarii worth of care from the poor. But that's the way we think, right? We think in fixed economic parallels. We think the world is just a, a sum of a fixed number of resources. You could take 300 denarii here and put it here, but it can't go both ways. That's not the way Jesus works. This is an important principle to remember. In human terms, the world does consist of limited resources. But in spiritual terms, God's resources are limitless. And the world will regularly argue that the money you spend on the work of the gospel or the money that you spend in glorifying Christ would have been better spent on something else. Oh, I don't give my money to the church. I go and give it to the poor directly. As though we could make some sort of distinction between serving Christ and serving the poor. And this is fundamentally said because the world believes that they are living in a closed system of value. Whereas the Bible teaches that God is of infinite value and he possesses infinite resources. So friends, we live in a society that is obsessed with activism. It defines us by the causes that we support, by the pins that you wear, by the flags that you hang, by the hashtags that you post, all these things we bring together to announce as though with trumpets our own moral worth. And in many cases, it's deliberately manipulative. Companies that will wave a rainbow flag in one place won't in Saudi Arabia. Because they're mostly concerned, not with the cause itself, but with what the cause says about them. And we as Christians can be inclined to do the same thing, to, to take on certain causes and to say, see, I'm liking the right things. Therefore, I am a right person. See, I support the right causes, not the wrong ones. You should like me. But Jesus therefore, does not in of himself reject activism. Jesus doesn't say that activism in and of itself is wrong. There are many things that merit our attention and our labor. There are some social causes that we should probably support. But Jesus says that we must let our support for social causes always be subordinate to our love for Christ. 
And so let our love for Christ rule how and when and if we interact with social causes and other issues. Let your love for Jesus rule how you respond to other issues. Jesus is not saying we shouldn't care about the poor or social justice. He's saying we need to get our heart's priorities in order. Because it's very easy for your love for a particular cause to affect your love for Christ. Because what's really going on here is Jesus is exposing our heart's true values. So our fifth point is Jesus exposes our true values. Look at verse 6. John just goes right to the heart of Judas. He says, he, Judas, said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it, Judas was posturing. Judas was virtue signaling. But you see, what's interesting is that living in the company of Jesus ultimately ends up exposing our true character. If I, for instance, you know, I, I fancied myself as a very tough sort of person and I could do a lot of things if I just put my mind to it. When we first moved to Colorado, I had a friend there, he's a former Green Beret, and we, we took the church on 14ers uh, to climb mountains that were 14,000 feet and taller uh, once a summer. And in order to prepare for one of these, uh, we had to scope out the trail that we were going to take. And uh, we decided to hike in and, and go set up camp and then summit this mountain and come back out. Ended up being, um, Rick, forgive me if I'm wrong, I think it was about 22 miles of a hike in. And I maybe packed more than I should have. And I maybe packed less food than I should have. So I was maybe more sparing about my calorie intake than I should have been. But all these things aside, by the time we're at about mile 17, it's all I can do to keep my feet just going like one foot in front of the other. And Rick, like ex-Green Beret, he's now in his, what, you know, his late 40s. He's still just, you know, dump, 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 dump. You know, he's fine. <laughs> Long day, you know, maybe he's got a callus on his foot or something, but he's not, he's not really bugged by this. You see, when you associate with someone who really has a certain virtue, it can expose where you really are in relationship to that virtue. You might think that you have something. You might think that you might be Christ-like. But coming up next to Christ can expose what's really going on in your heart and where you really are. See, being around Jesus and spending time around his people in his word and participating in his worship has a long-term effect on a person. It pushes them in one of two directions, either closer to Christ or further from him, because Jesus is a polarizing force. I'm happy to say that my, my relationship with Rick grew. That wasn't the last time I, took, I went on a hike with him. We went hunting together. We went hiking regularly. We would go and hike just so we could go pray somewhere where nobody was. And by the end of my relationship with him, I could keep up with him to a degree. <laughs> it was getting better anyways, right? Over time, the people that we associate ourselves with impute to us to a degree the virtues that they have. 
People like Mary and Martha are drawn by Christ's spirit and they experience a progressive but ultimately radical change of their heart and their priorities. But those like Judas reject God's grace and they remain in love with their own glory and ultimately they cannot tolerate God's way of life. And this works out in several different ways. One of which would be if we love our glory more than Christ's, we may resent Christ's ownership of our works. If we love our own glory more than Christ's, we may come to resent Christ's ownership of our works. If we don't see Jesus as the root of our strength, as our life and our ability, then we will grow to resent whenever he gets the glory for what we imagined to be what we did. We will begin to see our relationship to God as a matter of earned favor instead of gracious delight, and that will poison the well of our affections and service. Another way that it could work out is that if we love society's favor more than Christ's, we may rebel against his commands. We may look for a way to serve the poor or even make a pretense of worshiping Christ so long as it does not cost us society's goodwill. But once society begins to pit itself against the commands of Christ, if we truly love society and their favor more than Christ, that will induce us ultimately to disobey Christ and go with society. We can see the mainline church suffering from this. They would rather have society's approval than Christ's. And so that causes them ultimately to dismiss the commands of Christ as no longer helpful because they don't please society. And so, ultimately, we would rather have the approval of our fellow man than Christ. Thirdly, if we love causes more than Christ, we find his ways irrelevant. If we love causes more than Christ, then we find his ways irrelevant. We imagine then Christ to have been short-sighted and his word rather dull. That there is a much better way to serve and love others than to show them the glory of Christ. You see, well, Christ wasn't concerned with the right causes. He didn't hashtag the right hashtags. He, he wasn't interested in the right things. He didn't see where society was really going. We need to help him along. Because the ways of Christ are not relevant. So we need to find relevant ways of applying Christ today. And if we do that, we trade the glory of Jesus for activism. Fourthly, if we love comfort more than Christ, then we will reject his calls to sacrifice. Now, this does not mean that Christ wants his servants to be uncomfortable, or that by being uncomfortable, you are therefore more holy. It means that Jesus' primary goal for his people in this life is not their physical comfort, but their personal holiness. His paths do not prioritize mansions and Maseratis, but instead the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And when we realize that Christ is more interested in our holiness than our comfort, we may come to resent his call and his command. We may begin to imagine that his sacrifice and his spirit are not a sufficient consolation. If you think back to what Pastor John preached about last week, he talked about how the Jewish leaders' love of their own security, power, and comfort ultimately blinded them 
to responding rightly and loving Christ. They would rather see Jesus die in order for them to keep their own power. See, but for those who see Christ for all that he is truly worth, nothing can compare with knowing and loving him. No cost is too great. No difficulty too sore. The joy of the Lord becomes their strength because Jesus delights in heartfelt worship. And that's our last point, is that Jesus delights in heartfelt worship. Look at verse seven. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I could spend another hour just on the sweetness of Jesus defending people who love him. Friends, I don't know how many of you hunger and long for the day when Jesus is going to defend your worship. And how many of us have suffered because we genuinely worshiped Christ, we lost something or we lost someone or we lost a relationship, we lost valuable things in this life. And we wanted Jesus to stand up and say that what we did was good and right. And we wanted Jesus to say, in essence, leave her alone. What she's doing is good and right. I promise you on the last day, Jesus will say so. He will vindicate all his true worshipers. That wasn't in the manuscript. <laughs> but this phrase, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, is somewhat difficult to understand. I'm not entirely certain what it means, but if we look at Mark in chapter 14, verses 6 through 8, that might help. There he says, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So what I think John means in verse 7, when he, when he records Jesus' words this way, when he says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, you're kind of wondering, well, what's the it? Is it to keep the flask? Probably not. She broke it. It's all over him. So, you know, what is it that she's supposed to keep? Well, it's not the money. She lost that. You know, so what is it? I think what John means when we consider it in light of Mark's gospel was that in some way, Mary had set aside this perfume for just this sort of an occasion. She, she may not have known exactly what she intended to use it for. It's possible that she went out and bought this perfume specifically to do this thing. Maybe that's what Mark means. I don't know. But something triggered in her heart to respond in this moment with this kind of intimate and lavish display of love and affection. And we don't know the time frame, but it seems reasonable that the memory of what Christ had done for Lazarus, Mary's brother, and the glory of that moment was still fresh in her mind. This was the man that had given her brother back to her. What Mary chooses then to do here is a sweet sacrificial version of Caiaphas' words, where he says, better than he knows. When he says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Now, he spoke better than she knew. I think Mary here acts better than she knew. I don't think she knew that she was really preparing him for burial. 
Instead, I lean into what Mark says when he says, she has done what she could. This is an overflowing of a desperate heart love for Jesus. Because friends, underneath all of this, and I'm so grateful for my conversations with Pastor John, we were trying to think through what, what is going on at the very root of this. What causes Mary to do this? It's love. And friends, all of our love springs from someone else's love. No one of us ever loves of ourselves. 1 John 4, 10 through 11 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The root of our love for God doesn't come from us, it comes from God. And the root of our love for others doesn't come from us, it comes from God. When we look at God's love for us, when we know God's love for us, that is what spurs love to God and for other people. The most basic root and cause of genuine Christian worship and faithful living comes from experiencing God's love for us. Mary's act here is not spontaneous, though it might have felt so to her. It was prompted by God's kindness and grace to her. She looked on the grace of God and she responded with the only thing that she could come up with to respond in that moment that matched the intensity of the grace that she knew from God. It was prompted by God's grace. And in this moment for Mary, this becomes her reasonable sacrifice to her Savior Romans 12, 1 through 3 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on all that has gone before this, the work of Christ, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, in the ESV, spiritual, in many other translations, reasonable worship. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, says, if you do not love Christ, let me tell you plainly what is the reason. You have no abiding recollection of having got anything from him. If you do not love Christ, it is because you have no abiding recollection of having got anything from him. Beautiful, heartfelt worship springs from a heart that is entranced with the goodness, the grace, and the glory of God. And friends, this passage is inviting us to give ourselves first to the worship of God, to cultivate a heart like Mary's, a heart that knows Christ's value and purposefully sets aside our best gifts for his greater glory. And so, yes, while sometimes acts of worship do feel spontaneous, yet I want to lean into the, the intentionality of what these, of what Mark and John said about Mary's word, uh, acts. They said she did this beforehand for his burial. In some sense, she knew what she was doing. So while sometimes worship feels spontaneously, feels spontaneous, yet most of the time, worship takes preparation and purpose. Cultivating a heart like Mary's does not happen in a moment. It takes purposeful planning. It's like building a budget for your heart. Because otherwise, you will only give Christ what is left over. That's why we build budgets for our money. We need to build budgets for our heart. Instead, we need to learn to build rhythms of worship into our daily life. 
personal, family devotions, financial patterns, periodic acts of service, and such a purpose to do this, to make a, to make a continual purpose of worship in our life, requires commitment and, as a consequence, sacrifice. Worship takes shape within the frame of a commitment. We must not forget that Mary was Christ's disciple. She had followed him already. She had listened to him. You heard the passage from Luke read. One of her first decisions is to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him. She had made a commitment to Christ. Out of that commitment flows this exceptional act of worship. So friends, we need to set aside commitments. We need to regularly attend the Lord's Day. We need to give sacrificially. We need to teach our families. We need to do all these things regularly. And all commitment ultimately is a form of sacrifice. Just like any of you who have ever made a budget for your own household know that when you say yes to one thing, you are saying no to something else. Every commitment is a form of sacrifice by default. Choosing the things that we treasure, which might have been put to some other use, and instead offering them to Christ. You only have so many hours in the day. If you give some to Christ, you're taking it from something. You only have so many dollars and cents. If you give them to Christ, you're taking them from something. There's only going to be so many experiences that you have in this life. If you point them towards Christ, you're taking them away from something else. I understand that it's a sacrifice. We may lose luxuries we might otherwise have enjoyed. You might not get that car, that boat, that house, that experience, that perfume, that smell, that taste, that symphony, that moment, that place. It might not happen in this life. We might lose social standing. We might lose society's goodwill. And while the goal of following Christ is not suffering, yet to follow Christ in this world requires sacrifice. Such sacrifices are immensely difficult. It is no light thing to break a bottle of a year's wages over one man in a moment. But such sacrifice is made possible by three things, discipline, love, and promise. We've already seen how regularity, habits, and rhythms are God's tools to help us endure difficulty. Mary had been a disciple. We've seen that. But another way that we might endure when our love for Christ costs us is by trusting his great and precious promises. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. If we trust that promise, it will ready our heart for the sacrifice. Because the irony is, is that if you serve luxury or fame in this life, you will lose it in the next. You'll have it for a moment, but you won't have it for eternity. If you seek to serve the poor at the expense of your love for Christ, your efforts will not last. But if we give ourselves to the love of God and others, then whatever good things we lose for his sake in the Gospels, he will restore, and more besides. So what truly cultivates and animates a heart of genuine worship? It's knowing, experiencing, and rejoicing in the love of God for you. Do you want to be like Mary? Then fix your eyes on Jesus and see with the eyes of your heart what he has done for you. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's so hard for me to apply this particular act of worship to each and every one of us because for all of us, it's going to look different. But if we're willing to cultivate a heart like Mary's, then such worship, worship that is pleasing to God, is the natural overflow of a heart that sees Christ and sees what he has done for us as more precious than anything the world could ever offer. Grace Community Church, let us be a church that lives our lives in such a way that it displays Christ's surpassing value. Let's give ourselves first to the worship of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's our earnest and heartfelt desire that what we have just brought before you and what we will now bring to you is an earnest, heartfelt sign of our love for you. And we thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us in and through, most especially, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask that that wonderful work and the person of your son would become so utterly transparent to the people here that we would readily subordinate every other value in our life under the supreme value of Jesus Christ. Give us hearts for Christ alone and Christ always. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.